So on October 6th, report from Middle Eastern Concern reads like so. Being alerted of suspicious activities, police came to the house of a Christian couple on September 21st, arresting both after they found Christian materials. The couple have three children. At an October 5th press conference, a Somaliland police colonel stated that two individuals had been arrested for being apostates and evangelists spreading Christianity with the case to be forwarded to the relevant court. He also threatened that whoever dares to spread Christianity in this region should be fully aware that they won't escape the hand of law enforcement officers and that the spread of Christianity will not be allowed and is considered blasphemy. He encouraged citizens to report those spreading Christianity to the police. The arrest and detention of the couple has caused great fear among the local Christian community with many believers fleeing abroad. Persecution takes many forms. Uh, Ridicule, threats, Oppression, discrimination, imprisonment, torture, and even death. Persecution stems from various motives. Uh, Authoritarian leaders, they feel threatened by Christian principles and Christian worldview. Communities often want to preserve their, their local traditions. Businesses don't want their oppression of others exposed. Persecution has also impacted the church in different ways, sometimes making the church stronger, sometimes causing the church to scatter. Persecution is also to be expected. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But no matter that it comes, no matter the form it takes, no matter the motives, no matter the temporary impact it might have, persecution cannot destroy Christ's unshakable kingdom. That unshakable kingdom we reviewed Last Sunday, he called it Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. We belong to that city right now. No matter what comes at the Christian, even persecution, we can take heart because Christ's kingdom is unshakable. Christians may suffer and die in the path of obedience, but that doesn't mean we lose the opposite is the case. According to Revelation 12:11, it says that they have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This is how we conquer. Christ's kingdom is unshakable. The gospel will march on. 
But until heaven comes on earth, enduring persecution is not easy. It's not easy when you're thrown in jail and your eight and ten-year-old boys have to flee to another country. It's not easy when you're a mother and you're alone in prison wondering how your infant child is getting fed or hurting because your baby has been forced into a Muslim family when you wanted her to grow up singing the songs of Zion. Christians suffering persecution need help. And we're going to talk some about that today towards uh, the end of the sermon when we hit verse 3. And one way we'll then apply the sermon is praying specifically for some brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution right now. And we'll join many other churches that are doing the same on this day. Before we get there, though, let's read verses 1 to 3, which is the next section in our study through Hebrews, and let's see how the Lord instructs us. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, it says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now you may notice a sudden, this this sudden rapid fire commands. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect hospitality. Remember those in prison. And in coming weeks, we will uh, encounter a few more of these, these commands, just one right after the other. It has a different feel from the rest of the letter. Chapters 1 to 12 contain these long discourses uh, on Christ being greater than the angels and Christ being greater than Adam and greater than Moses and he's the greater high priest and he inaugurates a greater covenant and that and through that covenant we come to a greater mountain Mount Zion and now we get a bunch of commands and this has led some to conclude that chapter 13 amounts to an addendum And that the real ending was chapter 12. And chapter 13 must have been tacked on later. And when they did so, did it somewhat artificially. But that view really misses the mark. The Holy Spirit guiding these apostles doesn't add anything artificially. And this letter looks actually... A lot like the other letters inspired by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. You have this rich, robust teaching on how God has saved us through Jesus Christ. And then that's followed by the outworking of those truths in the specifics of our lives. Moreover, every command grows from the gospel truths mentioned earlier in Hebrews. And we'll try to develop a few of those connections as we as we move along. But more immediately, 
This is how chapter 12 ended. Look back at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship or service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So chapter 12 ends on the note of offering to God acceptable worship, acceptable service. Verses 1 to 19 of chapter 13 now give us a few examples of what that acceptable worship looks like from day to day. It's not an addendum. It's the application. He's telling us what our worship, what our service, service that's pleasing to God, what it ought to look like 24-7. So for those who belong to Mount Zion, chapter 13 is telling us how to practice our heavenly citizenship on earth. So, the first thing he gives us is this, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Our worship doesn't please God if we neglect brotherly love. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4.21 Now consider a few things about this command. For starters, it's not spoken to Christians who haven't loved each other at all. If you flip back to chapter 6, verse 10, do you remember how he commends them? He says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So their love for God, their passion for his name resulted in them serving the saints, loving the saints, and they were still doing that when he wrote the letter. But he doesn't assume that it will just continue automatically from here on out. We must work at it. Brotherly love is hard. It's not convenient. It requires great emotional strain some days. People in the church are not always easy to love. I know that because I'm not always easy to love. According to Jesus in Matthew 24, 12, also our love can grow cold in the face of trials. And so we must continue cultivating it. And that's also why he added in chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, the love he has in mind isn't what our culture might call love. This particular love grows out of our union with Christ. Notice that it's a brotherly love, and that's a theme Hebrews has already addressed. So throughout Hebrews, you, you have Jesus. He is, he is the son of all sons. 
But as you jump through the letter, all of a sudden we discover that God sent his unique son to make us sons and daughters as well. And so in chapter 2, verse 10, God brings many sons and daughters to glory through Jesus, through Jesus' sufferings. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. And he then calls us God's children in chapter 2, verse 13. And then throughout the letter, that's what he addresses them as a brothers and holy brothers. So that's what we are, meaning through our union with Christ, God brings us into his family. When you trust in Jesus to save you, God adopts you into a new family alongside other brothers and sisters who are saved by Jesus' blood alone. And those brothers and sisters, they then look at the way their elder brother loved them. They then look at the way Jesus loved them. They look at him entering our pain. They look at him identifying with our sufferings. They look at him taking the initiative to rescue us. We look at him enduring great trials to see us made holy in the Lord and laying down his life while we were still his enemies. And we see all of that familial affection he had for us that moved him to sacrificial action we're looking at that, and it compels us to do likewise to one another. So we love one another because he has first loved us. This is how the gospel is then motivating us to walk accordingly to Jesus' love. D.A. Carson puts this uh, very well in his book, um, one of them on love. Can't remember the title of it. It'll probably come to me by the end. Um, it's on page 61, whatever it is. That's, I do remember that. But he says this, the church itself is not made up of, a, of natural friends. I remembered it. Love in hard places. Told you I'd remember it. Love in hard places is the book. So he says this, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common ethnicity, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The reason why Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus is that it, dis it is a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatibles. That is also why we must work at it. And why we must beware of the erosion 
of love, end quote. Love erodes when we develop self-righteous attitudes towards one another. Love erodes when we start talking about our brothers and sisters who are saved by the blood of Jesus as us versus them. Love erodes when we assume things about each other that are not true. And then pass them along all over Facebook. Love erodes when we elevate personal preferences over biblical fidelity. Love erodes when we divide ourselves around skin color and class and other man-made social identities. Love erodes when we refuse to forgive and harbor bitterness over offenses. We must beware of the erosion of love, and we're seeing a lot of it in our cultural climate. Persevering in brotherly love is a necessary mark of authentic Christianity. Brotherly love is a necessary mark of a healthy church. A church's maturity isn't measured simply by what we confess, but also by how much we love. How are you working so that brotherly love continues here? Brotherly love will characterize the coming kingdom of Christ. The heavenly Jerusalem is a city of love that abides forever. Would you say that the relationships in our church serve as a visible pointer to that coming city? Wherever, we do, wherever they don't, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. And we're not talking here about some kind of weak emotionalism. And it's also not a dispassionate duty. I mean, the love we learn from Jesus is different. It is a genuine affection. A familial fondness that we have for one another's good in God. It's a true affection that you feel for one another's good in what's holy. Such that, and it's, it's a kind of affection, it doesn't stop there, it moves you to do things for them. It moves you to help them have that and obtain that good in what's holy. That's the love we find in Christ for us. So how are you growing in your affection for each other's good in God? And then how are you sacrificing to see each other obtain that good? Christ's love is boundless. It touches every, every, every area of life for the believer and every relationship he or she has to others in the church. I mean, once you are family, the family who will dwell forever to, on Zion together, you can't help but love this way. We, we bind up the brokenhearted. We, 
We encourage the weak and we pray for the sick and, and we refresh the missionaries when they come through town and, and we feed the brother who's, who's looking for, for a job and can't find one and we, and we turn back the one who might be going astray into sin. And we serve the mom who needs a break. And we admonish the lazy and we comfort the depressed. We are not an event that happens on Sunday morning. We're a people who gather to love each other as family throughout the week. We, can't, we might gather like this to learn how, but it's got to play itself out throughout the week. One way that happens is by showing hospitality. And that's the next command we encounter in verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now the ESV adds to strangers here, and they're kind of basing that on the words etymology. So it's made up of two words for love and stranger. So hospitality carries this idea of love for the stranger. And there's something to that. But in similar verses, like Romans 12, 13, for example, the ESV simply translates it, show hospitality. It doesn't have two strangers, it just says, show hospitality. And I bring that up to say this, if your translation includes two strangers, most likely it's referring to other servants of God outside the current fellowship. That is, they're, they're Christians, but they're strangers to you. Okay, so Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25, verse 38, mentions his followers welcoming the stranger and feeding them and clothing them. And in the context, the stranger is, he says, the least of these my brothers. Okay, or in 3 John 5, we find similar use of, of stranger. It, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. These would be the, 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 those who've gone out for the sake of God's name and, and they haven't received uh, gifts and support from the Gentiles, nations. They, they, they've got to receive it through the, through the church. So see, when they come to you, strangers as they are, support them. Now, this doesn't mean we don't show hospitality to non-Christian people. We certainly should. And, and there are other places in Scripture where we find that sort of care exemplified. Okay, but the New Testament repeatedly stresses that special priority should be given to those belonging to Jesus. Galatians highlights this priority as well when it says, as we have opportunity, so think, think of concentric circles here, as we have opportunity, here's the big concentric circle, do good to everyone. Smaller concentric circle, especially to those who are of the household of God. All right. So because of our union with other brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ, we have a special family obligation not shared. We don't share it with the rest of the world. We have a special obli obligation to serve believers through hospitality. And in and through that special obligation, when we're doing that, guess what? We become witnesses to the world. This is the way Jesus said it would work. Right? Love one another, and how will the world know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another? So we are doing this, and by doing it, we become 
missiological, missional in our our, uh, work. The world sees this and says, that's beautiful. Why is she eating with with that family? And, And why is that guy over there who voted that way eating with that guy who voted this way? That doesn't make sense to the world when they have Jesus in common. We find hospitality emphasized throughout Scripture, but it's especially emphasized for the church. When the Spirit creates the new community in Acts chapter 2, when the gospel takes root in the people, what do we see them doing on a daily basis? Breaking bread together in each other's homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. In the letters, we find it commanded. We find it commanded here. We find it commanded, I said earlier in Romans 12, 13, also 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. <laughs> and he adds, without grumbling. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Titus 1, 8, they make it a character qualification for the pastors of a church. You don't appoint a man to become a pastor if he's not a hospitable person. Why why does he put something like that there? Because as the leaders go, so goes the body. The leaders are put there to exemplify it so the rest of the body is growing up in hospitality. This is a big deal in the New Testament. I mean, table fellowship is some of the closest fellowship. It's family fellowship. One place I love taking people to is Galatians chapter 2, right? Peter, as a Jew, he's eating with the other Gentiles. And by eating with the Gentiles, he's showing that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Jew and Gentile-like people from different ethnicities and who were hostile to each other, they can share in the closest fellowship because of their common union in Christ. But then, when his Jewish buddies show up, who are rather proud of their Jewishness, Peter withdraws and separates himself from the Gentiles, and Paul rebukes him for walking, for, for not walking in step with the gospel over how he acted at the table with the Gentiles. So eating together for Jesus' sake, is a big deal. Who we are willing to invite into our homes and serve a meal shows how well we understand the gospel of grace. So if there are people you're not willing to associate with, and you know they've been bought by the blood of Jesus too, you got problems understanding the gospel of grace. By showing hospitality... You become a visible expression that all of our man-made social divisions have been overcome by the unity we share in Christ. By showing hospitality, we also provide a structure for discipleship of new believers, maybe existing believers that have questions for Older believers have been walking with Jesus for a while. We, we, we provide a structure for building unity with one another and growing in our relationships and knowing uh, each other's needs. 
right? How will you know, how will you fulfill Jesus' command to bear one another's burdens when you don't know them? you got to be together and hear from one another to know them and in order to fulfill, fulfill the law of Christ. It provides a structure for ministering to the poor, refreshing missionaries passing through your town, a context for prayer in the midst of distress. Home isn't a place to escape from others. It is a place to extend grace to others. I'm indebted to Dustin Willis for pointing that out. You've you probably observed this. I mean, how many people... I mean, you've lived on the street with them a long time. You don't know them at all because the only time you see them is when they're pulling... The garage goes up and they're pulling in and it comes down. <laughs> like, that, that's how we are in America. We want our space. We don't want anybody to come into our space. And the church is supposed to be different than that. Home is a hub for ministry to each other in one of the most intimate of settings, not a place to avoid each other. Hospitality serves the mission of the church in a big way. If you want to impact the world for Christ... Get off your online echo chambers and start having people in your home face to face. Hospitality is our response to God's hospitality. I mean, besides his generosity in creation, the air you're breathing, the food you ate this morning... We too were once cut off and strangers to his covenant. But through Christ, what have we seen throughout Hebrews? Through Christ, he has worked to make us guests at his table, guests at the throne of grace where we can receive mercy in time of need. He has welcomed us not just into his his. Uh, his his mountain and into his city, he has welcomed us into the presence of himself. So we're to be hospitable to people because that's what our Heavenly Father is like. Uh, here's another motivation, though, that he lists For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, we get several stories in the Old Testament of people showing hospitality to God's messengers, and they don't know it at first, but, but as the events play out, it, goodness, it happens that there are angels, after all. I mean, the most famous one is probably the three visitors that come to Abraham in Genesis 18, and he urges them to wash their feet and take a rest and have some bread, and then he gets Sarah, and both of them prepare these angels, a rich, a rich feast what is the point of verse 2? Is it this? Show hospitality because you can see an angel. Invite someone to your house so you can see an angel. No, they weren't aware that they were angels when they were serving them. That's the point. The point is that by showing hospitality, you're acting like Abraham's children participating in the advance of God's kingdom. 
Think about where else angels have appeared in Hebrews. Jesus' name is superior to angels. Angels worship Jesus. For a little while, man was made lower than the angels. Angels gather for a celebration on, on Mount Zion, right? But we also learn this in chapter 1, verse 14, that angels are ministering spirits who are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So, by showing hospitality, we are participating in God's heavenly purpose to bring salvation to the nations. By showing hospitality, we engage in an activity that is incredibly blessed by God and which He uses to build His kingdom. By showing hospitality, we participate in, in the very things that, at, that angels right now are gathering on Mount Zion to celebrate. That's the point. So, how are you practicing hospitality? I mean, some of you are doing a great job. You, you, you've offered your home to other believers needing a place to stay. You do it regularly. You, you have people over regularly during the week even if that means messy rooms and late nights, right? You make the sacrifices to minister to others. Others of you have invested in preparing the mission house from month to month. Uh, this letter was written by previous guests. Got a little coloring picture on the front here, but it says this. Dear Redeemer Church family, hospitality is the art of making others feel <clears throat> feel welcome, comfortable, and at home. It's the talent for spreading warmth and kindness that will be remembered always. Your hospitality was all this and so much more. Thank you for allowing us to stay in your mission house. We are blessed, and may you continue to use this gift to bless others in Christ. And then the family gives their name. I won't say it since they're missionaries. I mean, that's it. Hospitality team and the others who've joined them, you've put a paintbrush on that wall over there or something, like, way to go. We're doing this. Then let's see that it continues all, all the more. Listen, for some of you, it's not so much that you're avoiding people, you just want to impress people. And so you might have this mindset that turns opportunities for hospitality into entertainment. It becomes work and overwhelming Right? It's all about performance. The house has to be worthy of an Instagram shot before you have anybody over. Look, a clean bathroom and a, and, and, and a clean table might serve your guests better, but let's not paralyze care with unrealistic expectations. I mean... We had people over for dinner this week, this week, and I was running a sewer machine out in the front yard when they showed up. Like, it was the best stinking greeting ever. <laughs> Here, hold this. <laughs> a clean home doesn't commend us to God. God does, and he... 
Christ commends us to God. And that's why we're getting together to, to begin with, right? Uh, maybe you're single and you're hearing this and like, I, I, I don't know how to do this uh, because really I don't even have my own place yet. I can't really invite people into it. Well, you, ca- you can still show hospitality by helping others create a hospital and hospitable environment. Uh, he wouldn't want me to say this, but Dustin Trojak has actually helped us here. He's, he's actually let out in, in, uh, with a team of greeters from, from week to week. He, he, has, he has helped us here on Sunday mornings become a more hospitable church who's welcoming to our guests. So his efforts have made our Sundays more hospitable. And I think we should imitate his example. So hospitality isn't limited to your own home. It extends to context outside your living spaces too. I mean, you can be hospitable at, at your workplace. Showing hospitality is about opening your life to others and saying, hey, you are welcome here. As Christ has welcomed me, I welcome you here. All right, lastly... He adds this in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. One way brotherly love expresses itself is hospitality. Another way brotherly love expresses itself is remembering those in prison and remembering those who are mistreated. This isn't just a, a, a men, like this remembering here. It's not just a mental awareness of their predicament. Like, yeah, I know it happens out there. It, it's, it's to so consider their predicament that it moves you to compassion, it moves you to sympathy, and then, and then it acts for their good. Like the others, this too is connected to the way that Jesus acted on, on our behalf. So I want you to turn back to chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15, the ministry of our high priest. Uh, It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I just want to take mental note of that. Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus chose to identify with our human experience. The eternal Son took to Himself a human body. And He experienced hunger and fatigue and and weariness. He felt the enemy trying to thwart his, His mission. He grew up with no place to lay His head. He experienced abandonment and abuse and grief and shame and betrayal. And he experienced all that in a human body and never sinned. I mean, he he felt the full brunt of temptation and never caved. And the point is, as our high priest, he's sympathetic to what we experience here on earth. He knows what we feel in our bodies. 
Okay, he sympathizes with our weaknesses, which means that he has such a compassion for us that it then moves him to act on our behalf. That kind of sympathy then plays itself out in the church. I want you to go to chapter 10 now. Chapter 10, verse 34. Chapter 10, verse 34, we have some Christians who are in prison for their testimony and some other Christians who are not in prison. But it says this of them, uh, go to verse 33. It says, sometimes they were being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for, this is the way they partnered with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Okay, that, if you look at the beginning of verse 34, for you had compassion, that's the same word that's used of Jesus' sympathy in chapter 4, verse 15. You had compassion or sympathy, just like Christ has sympathy. They had Sympathy on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your, of your property. So this, the point is that the Christians not in prison had such compassion for those in prison, it moved them to act on their behalf, even if it cost them their stuff. Okay, so, so just like Christ's compassion moved him to act, what do we see now playing out in the church? Compassion that moves them to act for those in prison or those who are mistreated. Uh, We could also turn to Philippians for another good example. Uh, The Christians in Philippi, they, you know, Paul planted the church and he goes about his missionary labors and they receive word that Paul's in prison now in Rome. And they considered themselves partners in the gospel and sharers in his sufferings and in his troubles. And so they determined to send Paul money and other gifts and especially a person. And so they commissioned this guy named Epaphroditus to travel and minister to Paul's needs. And Epaphroditus risks his life to get Paul the gifts in prison. Uh, he, Epaphroditus even falls sick at one point. And he says he's sick almost even to the point of death. So somewhere in his travels to get Paul the gifts, he gets sick and he almost dies. And yet he gets Paul the gifts. Uh, So he finally makes it to Paul, and when Paul receives their gifts, he calls them this at the end of the letter. He calls them a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That word, acceptable, is the same word we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. About, being, about giving our acceptable worship. Okay? 
So they, by remembering Paul in prison and sending him these gifts, this is their expression of worship. Of, out of reverence and awe for God, serving him by serving his people. Sometimes we use the expression, put yourself in their shoes. And, uh, and I think that fits with what we're called to here. For those in prison for Jesus' sake, put yourself in their shoes. For those mistreated for Jesus' sake, put yourself in their shoes. You can imagine what it's like to be imprisoned or to be mistreated because you have a body. You have a, a physical body. He's, he's not talking about being part of the church body, though there are other places in Scripture where they, where they do bring that out. He's discussing being in body. You, you know what it's like to feel pain, and you know what it's like to, to be hungry and, and lonely and, and fearful that your kids aren't going to make it. You, you can imagine, as a husband, hearing cries from your wife through the, hall, through the hallways of the jail when she's in another cell, and you can't be there to, to comfort her, and you can't be there to protect her when the guards are doing awful things to her. You can imagine that. Put yourself in their shoes. And this passage is saying, get in their shoes and then let what you feel, that compassion you feel for them, move you to act. Move you to act on their behalf. So, so read the stories, right? Get on, there are sources. Voice of the Martyrs is one. Voice of the Martyrs, Open Doors, USA is another. Uh, Middle Eastern Concern. These are all Ministries, nonprofit organizations that are devoted to getting the news out to, to believers worldwide about the persecuted church so that we can pray for them, know them, identify with them, support them. Stay in touch with, with missionaries. Ask them what's going on to the extent that you can. Identify with the mistreatment of these brothers and sisters and then act for their sake. So you, you can serve them in ways that you that you would like to be served if you were in a similar situation. So where it's possible, visit them. Talk to them and encourage them from the word. When it's not possible to visit them, pray for them. Don't forget them, but, but remember them. There are practical, I mean, ways you can... Uh, we don't remember... I don't remember everybody all the time. I have, to, I have to work and put things into my life so that I can remember. What, like one of those things, we just have a, a prayer guide on our, on our dinner table. And, and we flip through one missionary family at a time or, or something like that at every meal. You can pray for a lot of people. You eat a lot at that table. Every time you sit down and give thanks for, the, for your bread, pray for a missionary. right? And you could put a card in there that says, Persecuted brothers and sisters. And that will remind you to pray for them. Uh, write them a letter. S send them a care package if, if their prison allows it. Again, ministries like Voice of the Martyrs uh, can help you do that. 
Look for avenues to care for the families of those in prison. If you're too far removed, support those who can help and care for the persecuted. If if you know contacts on the ground, you can't be there, but if you know contacts on the ground, support the contacts. Make it easy for the contacts to, to minister to those who are in prison or mistreated. Seek to support them. One way we're going to do that now is by praying together for specific brothers and sisters experiencing persecution. In one of his imprisonments, Paul asked the church in Ephesus and then also in Colossae to to pray for him. We see in the book of Acts, when when in Acts 4, when the apostles are beaten and they come out, what do they do? They go and they pray for boldness to continue speaking the word and God literally shakes the place and, and, and sends them out with boldness. In Acts chapter 12, James and Peter are put in prison and the church is gathered at the home of another believer and they're praying for them. James ends up being killed by Herod. But as the church is praying, an angel gets Peter out of prison and later kills Herod. God killed Herod while the people are praying for what's going on. It's no small thing when we pray for those in prison and for those mistreated for the gospel's sake. So, I'm going to stop here and ask if they turn the live stream off and give me a thumbs up because some of the things I'm sharing, I don't want them going online. Good. All right.